You are listening to the Evolution Exchange NHS podcast. We shine a light on the topics that matter to digital and data leaders in the NHS. I am Brad Nickunder-Clark. I connect interim talent with NHS leaders, and I am your host. The views expressed by guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect the official position or policy of their organisation. I'd like to make our way through our introductions if we can. So Debbie, I'd like you to to invite you to introduce yourself first, if that's okay. Yep, Yep, of course. So I'm, oh, I can hear an echo. That's never good. You don't need two of me. I'll try again. Yep, there we go. Um, So Debbie Loke, I'm the Interim Director of Digital at University Hospitals of Derby and Burton Foundation Trust. Excellent. Andy, would you like to go next? Sure. Hi, everyone. Um, So my name's Andy. I'm the Chief Information Officer at University Hospitals of Leicester. And Jim, would you like to go next? Hello, Jim Austin. Chief Information Transformation Officer at the Community Service in Derbyshire and also the Digital SRO for the Joint Care Derbyshire ICS. Excellent. And last but not least, John. Hi, John Court. I'm the Chief Digital Officer in Chesterfield Royal Hospital. So obviously that's the same ICS that um, that both Jim and Deb work in. So um, yeah, that's me. Excellent. So I'd like to make our way to the first question, which I'd like to be from Debbie, if possible. Um, if we then use the hands up function in terms of who answers that question first, and I'll come to you at you know, the next available point that we can do so. If there's any follow up questions or anything, you know, again, just use that hands up function and we can we can go from there. So, Debbie, would you like to pose the group to the question to the group? Yeah, of course. Um, so my question really is around how how we make sure that we don't create a bigger digital divide as a result of the rapid digitization we've done over the last 18 months um, as a result of the pandemic. So I'm interested to get people's views on that. Who would like to go first on that? I'll go to John. I think John was just in there first. Cheers. Thanks, Bradley. I think I think it's a really important question, um, but we just need to be aware in any industrial revolution that there's always going to be an element of either deliberate or in this case probably um, um, inadequate resourcing of the citizen to be able to be onboarded with the change and that is important and we can talk about that more now but I just wanted to throw out the concept that this could approach analysis paralysis and not actually move on at the pace that's required for the greater population. And the way in which I tend to answer the question when um, when poised to me is that if we do X amount of work digitally, then we have more face to face healthcare interfaces available for those that don't. Um, and as a result of which um, we're not making everybody the same. I accept that, but they're not the same at this moment in time either in other areas of capability in able to access healthcare. So I'm not saying we should ignore the issue, but what I'm saying is that there is a concept where we should be able to improve the digitally naive as well as the digitally enabled by digitalization. Thanks. 
We'll go to Jim next. So I think I'll build on John's point. There we go. I'll build on John's point. I think um, one of the concerns for me is around the muscle memory of uh, the NHS in particular around reverting back to the way we used to do things because we think we did things pretty well there. So what I want to make sure is that we don't suddenly revert back to some of the old ways of doing things. But I think the way that I would try to work through the digitization and the digital divide would be there is a lot of data out there that's available to say so who are we attending to that needs treatment and who are we not and then we understand whether that is a digital division or something else and there are normally three reasons for people not being able to engage digitally one is around um, not having equipment to do something about and actually within the pandemic we've been resolving that for quite a lot of citizens by providing them with tablets and laptops and things like that the second normal reason for um, digital exclusion is around not having the data capability to do it. So I've got equipment, but I don't have a broadband connection or I don't have a, a SIM card that gives me data that I can afford to connect with. And again, we've been ad ad addressing some of that. But the third element relates to skills and need. So I can have the kit, I can have the, uh, the, the connectivity, but I don't have either the skills or the need to engage digitally. And I think that's where um, where most people perceive being the problem. You know, there's an assumption that it's the elderly that don't have the skills to get digitally connected. Interestingly, I'm, I'm not sure that's the case anymore. I think I see quite a lot of um, uh, senior citizens um, accessing health and social care services digitally perfectly capably. There's something about making sure that there is a convenience and need that works for people that makes sense to them. And that, you know, the furore we've seen in primary care in the papers around, you know, a, a very strong push back to face to face, for example. Three years ago, uh, centrally, there was a stream push to move to a digital connected way of doing business. Primary care have reacted to that. That's been compounded by the epidemic as a as a way of really scaling up. And now they're getting shot for not being able to engage face to face when actually we're still here we sit the 1st of December when we're recording frankly still in the middle of a pandemic with quite a lot of work going on I'm not sure we're ready to unlock some of that so I think you know I think there's a way of addressing the three areas of um, digital deprivation but also just not not forgetting that it's not just about um, the divide necessarily there's still quite a lot of muscle memory we need to overcome to make sure we sustain the, the changes that we've seen thanks Andy, would you like to speak off the back of that? Thanks. Thanks. Yeah, and I'd, I'd agree with a lot of what Jim's just said. I think the the point about how this risk of digital inequity overlaps with more general challenges around health inequalities and access, I think, is really important. So, you know, we know there are groups that find it more difficult historically to access healthcare, and if that's compounded by the fact that we're now layering on top. Maybe it's the same group, maybe in some cases it's very different groups. Um, we're layering on top kind of additional challenges around have you got equipment, have you got access to broadband, et cetera. I think we've got um, we've got an obligation really to think that through. And some of that's about thinking about alternatives. One size doesn't fit all. Just because we can deliver stuff virtually doesn't mean we always should. Um, we've had quite a bit of discussion over the, the COVID pandemic really around, we did a lot of move to virtual through necessity wasn't optimised in all cases. So there's something about the clinical teams thinking through where does it absolutely make sense to do something virtually? 
where do they need to physically see the patient and how do we try and strike the balance and make sure that people then aren't therefore disadvantaged and I think as John said sometimes then you, you you're freeing up capacity to see the people who need to be seen face to face so optimizing it I think is important and then I think there's something around as we move more to an ICS way of working some of those traditional organizational boundaries potentially um, get lowered something about how we support patients and citizens in local areas so if they are struggling potentially to access the consultation from home is there an option for them to go to the gp practice and have a consultation with a an acute specialist in the gp practice with some support from somebody there and that type of approach is probably something that we wouldn't necessarily have conceived of a few years ago but now should be entirely possible because some of the traditional barriers around how healthcare activity is funded and paid for and jumping across organisational boundaries to see what's right for the patient. I think there's there's more opportunities there as we start to work differently and in partnership through our, our ICS setup plan. Some excellent points there. Debbie, would you like to, to discuss that point as well, having raised, raised the question? Yeah, I yeah, would. I, would. I, I mean, I think... Oh echo again um, so yeah just to come back on um, a couple of those points so I think the skills point that Jim raised is really really critical so this it's not just our citizens that we see having this whole digital divide and lack of equipment and lack of digital skills we see it on our own workforce as well so within our own organizations we have those who are completely technically savvy and can probably go off and code and create their own systems to those who are really still quite frightened about picking up an iPad or, or doing anything with with kind of digital solutions. So it's how we support our own workforce. And I know there are lots of plans and, and you know, the whole people plan that will cover that. Um, and then secondly, I think it is a really difficult balance between that muscle memory thing you talked about, Jim, and being able to offer new multiple ways of working because typically when we do some kind of digital transformation we try and turn off old ways of working and we move forward with new ways and I think in, in this respect we're keeping some of those old ways available because we need to for that digital divide but it's making sure we don't creep into that too much so I think it's just lots of interesting points there. Excellent does anyone have any follow-up questions or anything they'd like to, to add in terms of that first question? No props. Jim, I'd like to invite you to, to ask your question to the group now. Uh, thanks, uh, Brad. Thanks, Brad. So, so um, recent news, NHSX, NHSD are forming up, reorganising and becoming part of uh, NHSE. I'm just be interested in the group's thoughts on how that's going to affect frontline delivery. Um, I mean, I, I, I might uh, state a few things before people have a chance to come in, but you know, I think uh, there was a very clear reason why X and D were set up and split out from NHS uh, E and you know the, the previous administration and, and the way things were working. And I can see that there has actually been some, some good work from both parts of them, but I can also see some real difficulties in the dividing of that capability. So NHS D being you know, clearly guardians of data, but also the delivery arm of NHS X doing the strategy. And there have been times in my experience where the delivery arm of the strategy haven't aligned and that's been very difficult where you're, you're, you're um, pushing one part of the regulation system against another. And I also think it's been quite tricky from a, um, a, a primacy point of view. Sometimes one will want you to do something and uh, the other part of the system might choose to do something differently. So there's been confusion at the front line. 
I have a personal view about where I think this is going to end up, but uh, I'd be interested in the views of the others about whether the X and D combining into E is a good thing, uh, and if if so, why, and if not, why? John, would you like to, to start us off? Yeah, so yeah, obviously so we're all living and breathing this, and to a degree, um, it, it, this this works quite well with the, with with Debbie's first question because what we've what we've said as an NHS in the last ten days or so is that digital tra digital transformation goes under the transformation wing and auspices of NHS England, and and so it should in the fact that at least two of us on the call have got responsibility for transformation processes in our base organisations. And digital is an enabler of transformation. It's not a thing that sits on a separate pedestal. Um, and to have digital, particularly project teams, um, sitting under the auspices of your transformation processes at a trust level definitely works and makes it cleaner and more agile. Which brings me to my next point, which is, is this going to give us a more agile environment? And I have concern about that. And I feel that we, um, and I certainly am living this at the moment, that we're moving from two and a half years of proposed agile, light touch business planning um, uh, into a, a, a well-trodden and comfort blanket green book five point business case um, environment again, which um, does not really fit with the required um, fluency that's the digital transformation and other, but particularly digital transformation requires to be able to be light of foot and to be able to deliver in a timely manner. So the concept is right, but I am concerned that we will end up going back to the old hierarchical multiple layers um, before getting, for instance, some money for a from a fund. Um, and I think that that will delay us and frustrate both clinicians and citizens that are now ready for a step change in the way we deliver healthcare. Thank you. Andy, if you'd like to, to follow up on that. Thanks, Bradley. Thanks, Bradley. I, mean, I think my thoughts were that the, the merger of the digital and transformation elements and the strategy is, is absolutely sensible in principle. Um, we've been having discussions locally about that, the kind of the, the concept of digital, you can't do digital without transformation. Um, and really we shouldn't be doing transformation without considering the digital impact. So bringing those functions together, um, getting them working with more synergy is absolutely, I think, in principle, the right thing. I think there's a concern over, as with any of these types of approach, the merger period and what impact that's going to have during transition. So there's some warning flags there, I think. And there's, I'd share John's concern over the risk of lapsing back to kind of governance processes that are less streamlined. And I think maybe we thought we'd, hopefully we'd moved on from. So, you know, I, I suppose that would be a the question posed for NHS D and X and E and I now is, well, how, how do we make sure we don't lose the good things whilst rectifying some of that challenge that some of the separation we've had where we've had strategy being done in one place and delivery being done somewhere else from a central digital perspective? That's got opportunity, but we need to not lose the good stuff, would be my thoughts. Debbie, if you'd like to go next. 
So, yeah, I, I agree with what everyone else has said, really. I suppose my biggest worry is still how this is going to affect the front line. So we're going to have delays inevitably to a number of things that are national systems that are being rolled out. There will be disruption to some of those. There's already a number of talks about which national systems can be retired, which ones need to be recreated. And I suppose my worry is that at a time when we're doing our own programme plans as organisations and an ICS programme plan, we're going to end up with a lot of centre driven changes to national systems that we also need to try and factor in. And it's the impact that that does have on the front line if people have been waiting two years, for example, for GP Connect or EPS and things that will really make a difference in those emergency areas. How do we manage that? And, and we know even with the United uh, with the Unified Tech Fund, there's been hundreds and hundreds of applications for that. Are they really going to be able to sift through those in a in a timely manner and undertake a murder of all of those organisations at the same time. So completely agree with what everyone else has said. I think it's the right thing to do and I think it will be better ultimately as a result of it. But I'm really concerned about the impact over the next year that that will have on, on our ability to deliver things. I think that's an excellent point, um, Debbie. I think it almost sounds as if, you know, in terms of this is, if it is the right thing to do, is it the right timing to do it? Alongside, you know, obviously the ICS is just around the corner. Is this the right team time to actually be doing this when there's something so large just around the corner for the NHS? Um, in terms of the next question, I'd like to go to John, if that's possible. Yes, more by fault and design, these questions all seem to run into a, into a continuous narrative. So my suggestion is, um, in in moving forward from from Jim's point is a really clear transparent process with milestones for bidding and you could argue that we have those now but whether or not the timing of those milestones is appropriate and this is from any fund or central source but the resultant con um, consideration and and evaluation and, and and delivery of those bids really needs to be predefined at the start of the process when the fund is open, so we know how long we've got to wait. And that should be made public because then we can, at the moment, there's terrible waste. So we're either overwhelmed or quiet. Well, we used to be quiet, now we're continuously overwhelmed. But at least we could plan at both an ICS trust level what we can be getting on with. Um, and it'd be just interesting to hear others on the call whether or not they, they feel that we send stuff to a black hole at this moment in time. Thank you. Jim, if we go to you. Sure. sure. Um, thanks, John. So I, I think it does feel a bit like that, doesn't it? Uh, you know, the Unified Tech Fund opportunities opened up. Uh, some of them had, I think, 10 working days to turn around some of the responses. Some of them got a bit longer. And then um, I, I actually feel a bit sorry for the, the central teams who were, I think, surprised by the um, ambition and desire to take up the opportunities that were laid out there and that has overwhelmed them a tsunami. Um, I, I, it, it makes it very difficult though to see how how you could do that in the way that our structural funding is for the NHS and I think that's probably where the problem comes and, and I know you know uh, you know senior people in NHS X and D have pointed this out and I think there is an ambition to move if we move to multi-year funding arrangements so we don't have these false dawns of everything must be spent by the end of a financial fiscal year end of march every year 
actually, that's how you smooth. The reason we're getting the ripples at the moment are because funding doesn't necessarily come through from Treasury in a, a neat way and then gets filtered and adjusted. And by the time it comes ready to dissipate out to organisations, pressure is on then to spend that within that fiscal year. So there's something about unblocking that. And, you know, I've not been in the NHS um, for my whole working life. I've, I've spent quite a lot of my working life outside the NHS where multi-year fiscal arrangements were the norm. For some reason within the NHS, it's a rarity. I think that's what will then uh, allow us to smooth out. The transparency bit's going to be important, but I could also see from a central position, if, if I get 2,000 times the amount of work I'm expecting to do, it's going to be difficult for me to hit a, a deadline. There's something about the smoothing of the underlying process first, I think, would make the real difference. Thanks. I think Debbie was next. Yeah, I agree completely, Jim. And I also think the fact that most of these funding um, opportunities don't become available until quarter three of a financial year is another big problem we've got to get round. There should be no reason why we can't have those agreed in quarter one and it gives us time to be able to plan those things accordingly. Because you're right, we hit winter pressures, if we can call it that now, um, but we kind of hit the busiest time of the year within the NHS and we're constantly scrambling around trying to manage all of these bids and then spend the money and then deploy. Um, at the worst possible time of year. So that there really is something that needs to be done around that whole, even if it stays yearly, they need to be able to plan that better to actually give people an opportunity to manage it. Andy, do you want to come on the back of that? Yeah, no, I'd agree with, um, with Debbie's point. I think the UTF um, was pitched as a unified approach and I think you could argue there's some merit in that in terms of there's a there's one form to fill in and there's one way of doing it but I think the challenge for us certainly has been the amount of capacity it's drained in terms of managing that process there's been various different deadlines for different pots of money as part of those funds which means we've been in a kind of a constant circle of bids being written and submitted and some of them have been submitted already and some of them are due next week and you, you're kind of working with lots of different clinical teams to try and get to not miss the opportunity which is kind of the thing that's in everyone's head but the ability has just been described, I think, on our ability to plan our investments and our resources locally without really knowing when we're going to know. I think that's the biggest thing for me is submitting something and not really having a date on which you know you're going to, you're going to get a yes or a no and trying to plan between now and March, knowing that this money has to be spent by March. I think that's, that's pretty much impossible. So, um, yeah, there's definitely something that we need to try collectively as the NHS to learn from this process this year and do better because it the latest in the year is always a challenge that's an ongoing theme um, but I think although there's been a step in the right direction in principle with this idea of having one process and one form and one way of doing it because of the scale of it and the number of different funds and the number of different bids that end up being then submitted is the, the kind of the mechanics of it have become um, quite significant in terms of how much time and effort is up and the uncertainty is the challenge really well. Debbie, do you want to follow up from that? Yeah, it was just to pick up on a point Jim made earlier around the fact that I think the centre were equally surprised, as you said, Jim, at the number of bids that came in and, and their ability to also process them within that time scales. So that actually might work in our favour if those organisations are all merging now and it just DIX you know everybody coming together to actually really see what the impact of that has been maybe it will force that change next time fingers crossed 
Go for it, Jim. Yeah, so so let's hope so. I think, you know, we've got to be very careful here. There's a there's the kind of gift horse in the mouth, and I know we'll come on to some questions around that as well. But th- there's something for me around there will be hundreds of people in Leeds or in London going through these bids at the moment, and there will have been hundreds, if not thousands, of people that have been writing those bids over the last few weeks to get them in there. And we're a health service actually at breaking point where we need not only clinical teams out on the ground assisting people, but we need administration and management resource to assist those clinical teams to be as as effective as possible. And as a system, we've diverted a huge amount of intellectual capacity into dealing with a a monetary and fiscal problem or opportunity. Uh, We should always talk about opportunities, shouldn't we? And the opportunity cost of that is huge. And that is where I'm seeing teams at their stretched breaking point. And what you end up with then actually is likely to be poor investment decisions made quickly and then executed suboptimally. And so actually as a taxpayer, you're not getting the very best for your money, even though all that process and desire is there to make sure we're spending it really, really well. That's what those people in the centre are trying to do, make sure we've got really good fiscal responsibility and that we're making good investment decisions because the way we set things up and the the way the system runs actually we're almost defeating that right from the word go and that's the bit i'd want to take back there's something around the transparency around that and i've already pushed uh, it'll probably fall on deaf ears those hundreds if not thousands of people working in leeds and london doing that assessment wouldn't it be interesting if they were out amongst the trusts amongst primary care assisting with the delivery of services they might actually make better informed decisions and be more useful that way and it might be a very different way of managing that dynamic uh, that's a big change though and unlikely to happen thanks yeah good point jim so anyone have any follow-up questions anything they'd like to to add in terms of everything that we've just discussed I think maybe a, a follow-up question just from picking up on some of the stuff that, that you guys have asked is, um, you know, do you think you guys are actually given enough time to spend these pots of money a lot of the time? <laughs> it's a really simple question, but I'd like to hear your thoughts around that. And John, you've put your hand up pretty quickly, so go for it. Well, I think if we're talking about the environment that we're currently working in, then the answer has to be honestly no. Um, uh, and that is... Coming back to one of the points I've raised previously, which is we are being directed that we're no longer to be light of foot. Um, And I think one of the reasons for that, as Jim's just raised, is that it would be really productive for the healthcare system, for those those working in Leeds and London to spend some time um, walking in our shoes. And I don't mean the people on this call. I mean the people that are actually delivering that care 24-7 in whichever provider you want to name. Uh, And I think that um, when they appreciate what we are being asked to do um, currently and then see what that actually means all the way through filtering through organisations, perhaps we would be in a position where we could all Um, work in a more cohesive and um, collaborative manner. And just to add, you know, I'm certain that those hundreds or thousands of people in Eton London are working extremely hard too. I think they are 
doing the very best job that they can do under immense pressure as well. Absolutely. But the system produces the results and the system yeah. is designed to produce the results that it that it does. It's perfectly designed to produce the results that we get. So actually, the pressure that is being felt through the system is probably a design feature of the way that we set ourselves up to run. And that might be a really good thing for the NHS XD coming together with E. It could be a really positive change that allows us to unlock some of that intellectual horsepower that is sitting and, and working very hard in a different way. So this isn't, you know, none of us are sitting here saying, you know, boo to the middle and you know, terrible people. They're not. They're working very hard in the system and the way that we, we as a whole, NHS, have designed ourselves to work. I think we need to make sure that the NHS XD opportunity unlocks that capability and gives people do doable jobs and we've got a better chance then of actually making really good investments which will improve the population health and all the other things we're trying to do thanks any additional points guys no problems um i'd like to invite andy to ask his question to the group so yeah this is I suppose follows on really nicely from that from that conversation to be honest so um as we've just been discussing the the extra funding or the central funding that's made available to us is absolutely valuable and it's the challenge of how we enact our what we already had on our um agendas locally so you know from my perspective we've got an epr program running we've got a digital workplace program running to try and better support our staff in how they do things digitally and then what we end up with is a number of tactical funded projects through some of these um utf and other bids i'm trying to kind of plan all that in and scale our resource up to deliver um, and often the challenge then becomes well it's fine to say to deliver that project i need x and y and z resources i might need a developer i might need a data person i might need a project manager there's a scarcity of some of those people and there's also a how far you can stretch your team and how how quickly you can scale up and down based on some of the challenges we've just been talking about around time of the year and availability of money and ultimately we're to some extent fishing from the same pond in terms of people with some of that specialist skills so the question really was around I've worded it as as the extra funding doesn't always necessarily mean you've got sufficient extra capacity um, and striking a balance between some of these tactical projects which have funding attached and still making progress against strategic priorities um, is a challenge. I'm just I was interested in what people's thoughts were on striking a balance between the two. We'll go to John first. I think we could we could even extend that further, actually, Andy. And what we could say is, um, with the brave new world starting next financial year, is working collaboratively across our providers. Um, what what resource do we need to keep the wheels on the bus? Um, and by that I mean the basic infrastructure that the ICS requires. So you know the knowledge of when legacy systems are going to um, pop their heads up the knowledge behind um, how we're going to be able to build a more integrated healthcare record and all the stuff that's basically in the background, keeping things running, keeping us safe with cyber, et cetera, et cetera. We all know what I'm talking about. So you've got that, that, that at a trust level, which will be understood, um, one would, and heaven knows one would hope so. But what we haven't in the past done 
um, even with providers in the same sector, um, is share where we're going with all of that. So how what are our intentions um, for the longevity of our background systems? Even something as 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 uh, focal as a patient administration system. Surely at some point an ICS should think about having the same. How can you do that? Then on top of that, there's other layers going to the very top, which is the shiny new toys. And the, a significant amount of the Unified Tech Fund has attracted um, and maybe I would suggest possibly diverted us to looking at shiny new toys more than working out a long term strategy at an ICS level for keeping the wheels on the bus and taking the variants out and giving using one preferred system for I don't know, patient healthcare records, portals, booking systems and stuff. So I think that you're absolutely right that by scrabbling around, and as we've already said, with all good intent, everybody's trying to do the right thing. But as we're all running around, whether we live in our own trust or Skipton House, we need to seriously start considering where the base safety level is and then move at a pace in so-called winter pressures that doesn't break the clinical people at the workplace or break the corporate systems they're working just as hard as clinicians so it's a really big question um and to try and answer how are we balancing it i, I think we we've just we're just spinning too many plates i haven't i haven't got an effective strategy to balance these priorities thank you so to build on that john i, I think um Within Derbyshire and within our ICS, we, we look to everything uh, linking ultimately back to something called the quadruple aim. Came from the triple aim that the Institute of Healthcare Improvement in the US came up with about well, 10 or 15 years ago and it's developed. Um, and so the quadruple aim is around improving the experience of patient care. It's around improving the experience that carers have around giving care. It's around reducing the per capita cost of care. And then the fourth element is around improving population health outcomes. And as a system, we try and link everything back to trying to hit the sweet spot. We are improving all four elements of that. Actually, very difficult to do. You normally end up you know, improving your cost, but you might have a, a problem with you know staff experience or those kind of things. But no, normally, you're trying to aim for that sweet spot in the middle. And then how do you link your tactical and strategic spend opportunities as they come through is having a strategic plan that says, this is how we're trying to attempt to improve that quadruple aim. And then as tactical things come along, you're trying to fit them into those strategic investments. And they don't always, but it's having that that pipeline of capability that you want to and then directing it and focusing the opportunities in a way that tries to illuminate that quadruple aim delivery. I think you then get into the really nutty bit around, do you know what, how do you deal with, as we're going through now across the whole of England, there will be 42 integrated care systems made up of hundreds of providers all bidding for the same thing largely and it'll be the same kind of resource that we'll need to make these things fly so do you know what even if we get the money now there may not be program managers there may not be the computer chips available to go and buy the stuff that we are committing to doing and we've kind of forced ourselves into a situation where the 42 integrated care systems in England will be competing against each other for some of that resource, which will lead to a cost inflation and actually a, a worse outcome overall. So I think strategically, again, you come to try washing it through in a strategic way, quadruple aim, and then focusing your your opportunistic um, 
short-term investments, the tactical investments as quickly as you can into those strategies. And then ultimately, until you change the system, you're going to end up with this um, peaks and troughs of, uh, of disorder as we see at the moment. Thanks. Go on, Debbie. So we're in danger here of getting three people that completely agree because we're all sat in the Derbyshire ICS. <laughs> um, so same kind of view as, as John and Jim, actually. I think at an organisational level, we have a portfolio scoring mechanism that's built around internal capacity, health outcomes, clinical priorities. Um, and what we're doing is balancing that through the ICS priorities, as John and Jim mentioned, and those quadruple aims. So I think we've got a good way of planning that in terms of the strategic things and, and the organisational must-dos that we've already talked about. I think a big issue for us is still that availability of revenue alongside capital and how we get the extra people to do the things that we need to do. And it's not just getting the revenue, it's as Andrew mentioned earlier, it's that shortage of skills. And I think that's where we need to look to the ICS more to share those resources, um, look at how we can share staff economies of scale with support and development on some of our shared systems. So we have a shared LIMS, a shared e-case note uh, at the minute in, in Derbyshire, um, Chesterfield and Derby both use those same systems. So how can we pull the resources to manage that better and free up staff to look at other things? Um, and then I think we also need to be brave and recognise that sometimes, despite money being available, we just can't deliver these things. And we need to empower the teams to be able to say, this is great and you know we would love the opportunity but based on the portfolio of work we already have we're not going to be able to bid for that and I think we get a lot of um, pushback by suppliers who then contact our chief execs and other people within the organisation to encourage them to spend some of that funded money and help them write those cases that then cause problems for us at the digital side when we have to look at those alongside other priorities and potentially turn them down so same kind of view as Jim and John really. Andy, having asked the question, do you want to, to raise anything else there? Thanks. No, I think it's interesting to hear your, your thoughts on it. I just wondered, it, just in terms of that answering that question, obviously you, you talked there about your prioritisation approach. Have you kind of used that as a filter for some of those more tactical, the shiny new toys kind of projects that we were talking about earlier? Is, or is that, is that more like an after the event, how does it, how does it fit? Yeah, tricky. So theory and practice, two different things. Yeah. And, and Andy, I know that Debbie said we're all part of Derbyshire. I appreciate you're not. So that's, that's okay. <laughs> what I would say is we did have to quite recently with the Unified Tech Funds do a prioritisation exercise around some of the bidding opportunities around when that came through as part of a regional ask. And I would say I took a brief glimpse at the quadruple aim. I then made a punt for what I thought was going to be best and then went back to each of the providers and ask them to validate and challenge what I'd done. So I think we're still quite embryonic in that capability to do it. I think we, I think at a trust level or a provider level, I think that work goes on quite, quite, quite in a quite a sophisticated way. I think that's good and working. I think at a system level, we're only just beginning to flex our muscles in that space at the moment. Yeah, no, I think that, that, that kind of mirrors, I think, our experience as well. I think for me, it's, it was more around, it's more around that peaks and troughs point. Um, that someone made earlier that lots of this I don't think we bid for money for anything that we didn't already have in our minds somewhere that we were going to do and you know we wouldn't have put the bids together if there were things in there that weren't the right things to do it's just we maybe wouldn't have tried to do them all now in the compressed time frame and that's the that's the challenging part I think for us um, the other point I was just going to make is that 
there's a, there is a degree of flexibility. You know, we can bring in some of the more generic skills, and I think we, we touched on the the um, the part about you know potentially the risk of nationally, potentially the volume of those people or those um, skill sets not being there. But there's something also for me around stretching existing teams because whoever you bring in to do short-term work, you're always stretching people's management capability and capacity to supervise, make sure we're getting value from whether that's suppliers or from those people adding to the team. Um, and it's back to the point that someone made earlier around the, it's the difference between getting the one-off funding to start and end the delivery versus being able to step up and go actually we need to grow our capability whether that's at a trust or an ICS level over, over a longer period um, and there is a risk of some of this tactical money being dropped and we do a piece of work and move on and we're not building that knowledge and expertise for the longer term and you can tie that back to you know we're competing healthcare IT is competing isn't it with other domains and is it is it where people want to go when they graduate from from university with whether it's computer science skills or indeed any other skills but it's um how we i suppose how we make that a better place or market it as a better place for people to work and try and encourage some more people to come into the sector because that's going to be ultimately part of the solution but it's obviously longer term go for it john so i think yeah that's a very good point andy in, in talking about the long term um, I think all ICSs and, 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 and that have an enablement stream, and we're going to obviously talk about digital, um, need to get into a position where all the providers agree to use the same sort of prioritisation tools. Um, and this is, for me, this is really exciting. Um, and it's certainly an experiment I'm really keen to run um, to see um, how well it goes without necessarily committing. Um, so if we would move forward by taking an exemplar, so Deb's outfit have done this for a while, and we need to start prioritising in two levels, two parallel streams. One is wheels on the bus and then the other is the tactical funding and which bits would we are we going to go for? And I definitely would like to sort of re-emphasise a point already made that um, there needs to be really quite high level board at each provider digital insight to be able to describe the reasoning behind the aggrieved vendor um, contacting a chief executive or chair of an organisation saying you missed an opportunity here um, and for it to be very clear in the plan of each provider and of the ICS the reason why we've prioritised what we have because everyone's right we can't do everything that's been asked of us and what we are doing is where everyone's working with best intention but we're, we, we, we are running a risk of doing too much too quickly too thin and not being in a position where we can deliver the quality of what we want to do at the same time. So really it's about high level trust acceptance of the digital agenda being, being, being up there, being the digital first concept, but also embedding digital thoughts and processes in any form of significant change. Um, and to do that, we probably need to have an agreed across an ICS um, process for justifying that prioritisation um, to go to the senior leadership teams of the ICS. 
which is certainly something I'm very keen to propagate in the next month, few months to try and have a skeletal frame of that uh, before we become a, a legal entity. Thank you. Go for it, Debbie. Um, just to pick up on a point that people have raised earlier around skill shortages, and I think the problem that we have is it's not seen as an attractive career in digital health anymore because you're right, we're competing with lots of other industries. All of them pay a little bit more, to be fair, um, and, and it's a real issue for us. So we have to make an attractive career path in digital health and we need to start utilising apprenticeships better. Um, on a call this morning, somebody was suggesting using training companies now to get apprenticeships where you actually gain a Microsoft certification at the end of it, which is a brilliant idea. Um, because actually we're getting people completely qualified and trained and having that apprenticeship that supports um, supports us in, in the staffing that we need. And things like ITIL prints, the Digital Academy and the MSc in Digital Health. There's, there's the CHIME, the BCS Fellowship. There's, so there's so many different routes that we can we can take. And I don't think we've invested the money previously in developing our own teams and keeping good staff within the NHS. So we, we definitely need to look at that. And I know that's on the agenda for most digital strategies and it will be for the ICS, but it's certainly a point to raise. It's a really good point, Debbie. Does anyone have anything to, to add in terms of that? All good? OK, that was all of the, the questions that we'd planned to go through. Um, you may well know a gentleman called Mike Emery, um, who has very kindly uh, he's requested that I ask this question on the end of every every digital podcast, and that is, what was your favourite cuddly toy when you were a child? <laughs> We can use the hands up function still for this and go one by one if you like. Go for it, Debbie. So I still have mine. It, it's a small white rabbit called Pinko for some unknown reason. Um, and it looks a little bit worse for wear, but I think I got it when I was two and, and I still have it. So yes, mine was a rabbit. I think Jim was next. Yeah, I wasn't allowed a cuddly toy. I was allowed a bar of soap. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Andy? Um, mine was mine a spider. Was a spider. So, uh, yeah, it was a blue blue spider, which is probably, I don't know where it is now, but it was probably equally worse for wear, as Debbie was described. And John? Mine was imagined to be called Panda. And when my parents moved house without telling me whilst I was away at school, apparently it went in the rubbish bin. So that probably explains quite a lot, doesn't it? <laughs> Mine was an elephant called Ellie, you know, imaginative, of course. <laughs> um, guys, that was excellent. You know, really happy to to get you guys together and, and to discuss all discuss all those topics. I hope you enjoyed it in terms of, of listening as much as I did. Um, in terms of next steps, so I'll get this across to the marketing team. They'll um, obviously get it into a podcast format and then we'll get it straight back to you guys for approval. Once you're happy with it, then we'll get it out and, uh, and get it published. So we'll do uh, Spotify, Apple Music, and then also our own website and, and LinkedIn, of course. So look out for the sound bites coming week by week as well. Um, but it's been an absolute pleasure to, to meet you guys and, and start you off in terms of this pr uh, process. Um, what Thank I'll do you is very much. Separately, I'll catch up with you individually. I'd like to take some feedback in terms of what you thought of the podcast process. It's something we're always trying to improve on and, and feedback's always welcome. It's always a gift. So, you know, thank you very much for that.